0: Source of true delight, my I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. If you would, please take your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. That's on page 972, if you're using one of the uh, Bibles in the rack in front of you. As you're doing that, I wanted to, uh, if any of you are out there wondering, uh, where's Darwin again this morning? um he uh if you're like me you uh, sometimes you know milk every minute uh of coffee and chatting time before uh, the service you might have missed this but uh darwin's in west lafayette indiana for the uh ordination service of brian davis this morning and uh, i think it's this morning it might be this evening but um he was uh, very excited about that as i'm sure many of you are as well uh brian as you know is Being ordained as the campus minister of Reformed University Fellowship at Purdue University. And uh, in many ways, building, going to be charged with building that work up from the ground. So um, by the grace of God, we all have the ministry that he gives to us. But uh, certainly in Brian's case, we can also say that grace was not without effect. So it's uh, something we can rejoice in. And I'm sure Brian, Darwin will have much encouraging news about that when he returns. Nonetheless, we're here to look at God's Word in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. I would not be a servant of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May we turn to him in prayer and ask his blessings for it. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have given us your word to tell us who you are, to tell us who we are, and to tell us how we might worship you, how we might approach you, and to tell us how we might be restored into fellowship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Now, we had been looking on Sunday mornings at the book of Romans. And Romans is a book that deals with some of the foundational elements of the gospel. The doctrine of justification by faith. The wrath of God that's poured out against mankind, but the way we might flee from that wrath of God. And... Galatians has many of those same themes, one of the reasons why I wanted to turn to it this morning. It's got foundational elements that are always important for us to be reminded of. And, you know, foundations are important things. You can see that if you look out at our parking lot because there's a basketball rim out there. And if you look closely, you'll notice that basketball rim, it's not exactly flat. The rim isn't. It's tilted down a little bit in the front and also a little bit to the right-hand side if you're looking at it. If you want to know why, you just need to walk up a little closer and you'll see that the you know, pole that holds the goal up, even after some recent repair work, it's still tilted just a little bit. The foundation's off and everything else will be off as well. Foundations are important things. It reminds me as well, when I was about five or six years old, I, uh, me and my family were in, uh, or my family and I... We're in St. Louis, and amongst the things we did there was we went to the St. Louis Arch, the tallest national monument in the United States, if I'm remembering that correctly. Something like 600 feet up there. I was too young, my brother was as well, to really know the difference, and we were just running around having a good time. But see, my dad has always had kind of this fear of heights, (laughs) and it didn't get any better when this 600-foot structure that we're at the top of is swaying back and forth ever so slightly? That'll unnerve you a bit because it'll make you wonder, like my dad wondered, if the foundation of that structure is solid. Because foundations are important things, especially when you're 600 feet high up there. Reminds me as well that in Mississippi, where I used to live for several years, most of the topsoil there is uh, something called Yazoo Clay. And the only problem with that is that it tends to settle. It tends to shift and kind of over the course of time, the foundations of houses can actually settle and shift a little bit as well, leading to cracks in a foundation, which can lead to cracks in a wall and even worse things than that. Foundations are important things. When foundations begin to crumble, you sound the alarms and you repair them as quickly as possible because it can lead to greater damage along the way. When Paul took a look at the Galatian church, he saw a cracked foundation. He saw some damage to the foundation. And that's why he's so alarmed in this letter. Foundations are important things. They're what really matter. When people start messing with the foundation of the gospel, that matters. That's important. When people start saying things like, Well, grace and faith, yes, those lead to salvation. And they stop putting that word alone at the end of it. When they stop saying grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, and they start saying that the solution to salvation, the way to be saved is faith and keeping the law. When they start saying that, yes, grace is good, Christ is good, but you need to make sure you're keeping up your end as well, the foundation is starting to show a little bit of a crack. that's an important thing that needs to be addressed. And that is why Paul is so worked up in this letter. Now, the church's one foundation, as the song goes, It's Jesus Christ, her Lord. But I think this morning we can see maybe three different facets of that one foundation, if you will. Three different things that Paul focuses on that he says, these things really matter. These things are foundational things to a church. He looks at the... Corinthian church and he says there's three things you need to know. and By extension, three things we need to remember. You need to remember that there's only one Savior that matters. And then secondly, there's only one gospel that matters. And lastly, because there's only one Savior, because there's only one gospel, there's only one audience that matters. But first, we want to look at that one Savior. There's only one Savior that matters. Paul talks about him in verses one through five. He Begins the way most letters do by introducing himself, uh, nothing unusual there. He also introduces his Lord and Savior. And what you'll notice is that the introduction on both accounts is it's not really long, but it's longer than it has to be, more than just the basics are in here. It's an extended introduction. Extended introductions can kind of be intimidating. They kind of stick out. If you don't know what I mean. Just picture this. Imagine, say, there's three guys in a room. They're introducing themselves to each other. One says, hi, I'm Jim. The other one says, hi, I'm Tom. And then the other one says, I'm Bartholomew William Lancaster III, president and CEO of whatever company he works for. The third guy in that scenario kind of sounds like he's got something to prove, like he's got some chip on his shoulder about something. And in essence, Paul kind of has that as well. Because let's look again at what Paul says here. In verse 1, he mentions, Hey, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. But then the word not comes in, and he starts a little bit of a, a forceful uh, presentation of himself. He's an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And oh, by the way, God the Father is the one who raised the Son from the dead. There's a little bit extra in there. Paul's putting some points of emphasis up front. And then in verse 3, this is is normal for most letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. But What does he remind us about the Lord Jesus Christ right after that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He throws those things in there, makes it a little bit longer of an intro. And, And why is that? Why is it that Paul's throwing the cross in their face instead of making small talk, instead of you know, offering some words of thanksgiving and welcome? Well, it's because Paul was facing some accusations from the Galatians. He was facing some accusations, and by extension, the gospel was being accused of something, being distorted. And by extension, the Savior that's proclaimed in that gospel was being distorted, being twisted. And so Paul is wanting to get something straight here right at the beginning. What matters to Paul as he picks up his pen or as he dictates the opening lines of this letter, he wants to make sure folks know that there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. There might be other things we're disagreeing about, and we'll get to those. But let's make sure we remember one thing. There's only one Savior, he says to this church. It's as if he says from the get-go, if you want to slander the messenger of the gospel, then fine, go ahead, we'll deal with that as we go. But let's make sure we settle one thing. There's still only one Savior, right? There's still only one God and Father who raised him from the dead, right? There's still only one religious leader in the history of mankind that sacrificed himself for the sins and the internal salvation of his people, right? Right? Paul wants to get that straight from the beginning. And then, right after that, he goes in and and keeps harping on this theme here. And he says, let's also remember that he gave himself to deliver us, to rescue us. He didn't come for people who were able to save themselves. People who meet God halfway, which, in essence, is what the Galatians were saying. And we'll get into more of that later. But, as we'll see later, Paul is shocked that these people are deserting the Savior and the gospel. And he, he holds this up, the Savior up, and shows them a picture of Christ as if to say, how dare you minimize the work of this Savior. Minimize Him at your own risk. Because only this Savior has absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. Only this Savior has stood in the gap for you. Only this Savior truly saves, in essence. So Paul looks at the Savior who saves, but he also mentions that this Savior suffers. He truly saves, but he also truly suffered. If we were wanting to construct our own Savior, chances are we wouldn't construct him the way that God sets him out for us. And why do I say that? Because because what does this passage make clear? That our Savior suffered. He's not someone who simply conquered by uh, beating everyone up. He's someone who conquered, but laying his life down. This Savior suffered. Paul, of course, mentions that, both in the verses we've just read. Verse 1, what does he say? That he is the Savior who was raised from the dead. The stench of death hangs over our Savior. The appalling, shocking death that he had to die. In verse, verse 4, he goes on and he mentions again that he's the Savior who gave himself for our sins. And we know that that happened in a horrible, excruciating, torturous display. He suffered in body and soul for our sake. Suffered so that his people might not have to one day taste eternal suffering. But of course we know, even though we don't have to taste eternal suffering, that all those, as Paul says elsewhere, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will taste earthly suffering. And you know I, I think that the Galatians sort of realized that, sort of realized that with salvation, with embracing the gospel, comes suffering. The problem was they were kind of trying to weasel out of it. If you look at chapter 6 of this book in verse 12, Paul talks a little bit about this here. It seems that some of them... Had tried to boast about keeping the law, specifically the Jewish rite of circumcision, keeping the law as a means to assure them of their salvation or status before God. It was kind of as if they were saying, Believing in Jesus is good, but you better, you better make sure you've kept the law as well if you really want to be assured of it. What does it say in verse 12? What was their motivation for this? Verse 12. Uh, chapter 6, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And why? And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They kind of figured it out. They were trying to avo- avoid the hard part. It was as if they realized if we can boast in ourselves, then we don't have to cling to the suffering Savior, the one who humbled himself for our sake, and that kind of figured out that they wouldn't have to humble themselves as much either if they were clinging to their own worth and accomplishments. Because if we focus on self and our accomplishments, if we ignore the cross, then maybe, just maybe, persecution will ignore us too. Converse is true as well. Paul talks about it in verse 17, about how he bears on his body the marks of Jesus, the second to last verse of this letter. If we're bold, if we lift high the cross, then we'll likely bear the marks of our Savior as well, whether that means literally or uh, figuratively or what. But we will have to bear the cross, a lesser cross, in the same way that He did. And you know, often that's not as severe in America as it is in other places, like the ones that Steve read about just earlier. But I sometimes wonder if we wouldn't be better off If it were like that, if we had to pay a greater price for our allegiance to the gospel, I wonder if it wouldn't be better off if it was like that. There was one time I was in a discipleship program, and it was after college, and we were studying the doctrine of the church. And I remember that in order to do that, our leader, he led us down into the crawl space underneath the main building where we normally had our meetings, turned out all the lights, turned out all the flashlights, sat there in silence for long enough to where it was awkward. And he reminded us that more than half, and maybe much more than half, I don't remember the statistics anymore, more than half of the world meets for church in conditions like those. Kind of makes you wonder, is it worth that? Is salvation in Christ Jesus worth that? Or maybe we should look at it differently. Is salvation from sin worth that? Is freedom from damnation worth that? Is a future home in heaven, restored, perfect fellowship with God in a sinless, glorified body? Is that worth a little persecution? I certainly hope so. Because the other choice is a supposedly easier life in this present evil age as Paul mentions in verse 4. Our foundation, our bedrock as Christians, is the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a Savior who truly saves, but He's a Savior who truly suffered. And to a lesser degree, all of His followers will as well. May God give us grace that we can follow that Savior and one day taste eternal blessings that far outweigh any other light in momentary afflictions. There's one Savior that matters, that really matters. As well, there's also one gospel that really matters that we see in verses six through nine. Once the intro is over for Paul, once he's introduced everybody, and once the Amen is uttered, the doxology's over, he begins what most people call the unthanksgiving section by telling the Galatians how shocked he is. They're acting like they can choose their favorite gospel the same way that you choose your favorite flavor of ice cream. And, and he's shocked at this. He's not very thankful for it either. Normally, Paul was always thankful for the churches he wrote to. And if you want an example, just flip over a few pages to Philippians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Or flip a few more pages. To Philippians, chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Or you could flip to Colossians 1, 3, just a few more pages. We always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You notice a theme developing there. So it's pretty shocking when instead of giving thanks For the Galatian church. Paul starts out by saying. He's astonished that they're so quickly deserting the gospel. Thanksgiving's going to have to wait till later. Because there's an urgent matter at hand. The Galatians are trying to choose a different gospel. It's as if Paul reacts to that. As if to say. What? You're choosing a different gospel? There is no other gospel. There's only one Notice what he says it in, in verses 6 and 7. You're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. You think there is, but there's not. The gospel doesn't come in different flavors, different, different shapes, different colors, different styles that we can choose from. There's just one. And furthermore, he's telling them in verse 9, he's like, by the way, you already chose this gospel, the true gospel. In verse 9, he he says, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, you already made your choice. It's as if he's saying. And then notice uh, in verse 6, he talks about they're, they're deserting the gospel. And who is it that they're ultimately deserting? They're deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. If there's only one Savior, which we already talked about, there has to be only one gospel. Because in one sense, there are no choices regarding the gospel. You don't get to go through and pick the elements we like, the elements we don't like. We don't get to say, the salvation part sounds good, but I don't want to have to deal with the suffering. We don't get to go through and say, you know, pick the teachings of the day that happen to have the word gospel attached to them and say, you know, well, I like the prosperity gospel a little bit. Then there's some interesting things in the liberation gospel and the social gospel. There's only one gospel. It has things to say about true liberation, true prosperity. And, and it has something to say for social issues in our day and time. But there's only one gospel. There's no choices. The gospel at its core is about a God who created, created heaven and earth. About a God who created a good world and created man in fellowship with him. Only man sinned and messed that relationship up. But then God sent a Savior so that He might redeem it, so that He might restore it, sent His Holy Spirit to dwell amongst them so that He might work a new creation in their hearts and minds. A new creation that, as one person puts it, is truly new, yet not totally new, at least not until heaven. Anything less than that, anything less than a gospel that says that Jesus paid it all, is not truly a gospel. Anything less than Jesus paid it all is not a path to salvation. It's a path to damnation and cursedness. Because if an imitation gospel, like the one that was being proclaimed among the Galatians, if it says that Christ died for 99% of your salvation, you just have to pull your own for the other 1%, if it says something, once again, less than Jesus paid it all, then it's not a gospel. That was the error amidst the Galatians. They, were say, they weren't saying Jesus and the cross are bad. They were simply saying by implication that they were insufficient. They were. It was the old, uh, some people have called it Jesus and disease. Trust Jesus and keep the law. Trust Jesus and make sure you're circumcised. That's the way to salvation. You can insert anything else in the and after there. Trust Jesus and make sure you don't miss too many Sundays in a given year. If that's what you're depending on, then you're depending on something less than the one and only Savior who gave himself for us. Of course, most of us here, we probably think, that's, that's not really an issue for me. I mean, we've we've read through the book of Galatians, even Romans as well. We've, you know We've taken that foundations class. We even remember most of those you know, solas that we talked about. Sometimes we can even remember the uh, Latin names for them, you know. But grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, we've got those down. So we're good, right? We deceive ourselves into thinking that sometimes. But just because we have those down, just because we, we know the intellectual facts of the gospel, does that mean that we're not in danger of departing from the gospel? Does that mean that we're not in danger of beginning to look somewhere else for our, our satisfaction, our acceptance, our newness in Christ? Does it mean that we're totally immune to this? Because I don't read minds, but I'll tell you this. I do know a measure of my own sinful heart. I know that as Psalm 51, five puts it, it's been sinful from the womb. I know that it's a perpetual factory of idols. I know that it's always prone to wander from the God I love. And I know that in essence, it's easier than you think to depart from the gospel. It's easier than you think to depart from the gospel. I was listening to something uh, from another pastor named Mark Driscoll. If you've heard of him, he's uh, uh, somewhat reformed in his thinking. He's a little bit provocative, so I'll warn you if you ever pick up something by him. But he was saying something similar to this once. He was talking about, incidentally, how... Often in this day and age, we don't like to talk about hell in the 21st century, but we should. We shouldn't be afraid to do that. And he was saying how most people, the reasoning goes that if we talk about that, we're going to seem unloving to non-believers and whatnot. And his conclusion was, he was like, hey, listen, just look around. Everybody's talking about hell. You know, and what does he mean by that? He's like, look, turn on your TV. Every advertiser out there has just reinterpreted the doctrine of hell a little bit. Because what they do is they say, in essence, hey, buy this shampoo or whatever it is, and it'll save you from bad hair hell. You know, visit this website, and it'll save you from relationship hell. Invest in this product, and it'll save you from financial hell, bad credit hell, or a thousand other invented situations that we didn't even know we were in danger of. before we turned on the TV. Now, that's not a commentary against TV, mind you. That's that's another topic for another day. But what it is, is a reminder of how many false gospels there are out there that we can flee to. And that's just the ones on TV. Because I'm willing to bet that even if most of you haven't called up and ordered a, a Snuggie or rushed out to the store to buy something else, some kind of gospel in a can or gospel in a box... I'm willing to bet that your heart, like mine, feels the tug every now and then, feels that tug that says, I wonder if my life wouldn't be just a little bit better if I had more of whatever. Take heed, all of you, all of us who think we stand lest we fall. That's why, once again, Paul isn't gushing with thanksgiving about the state of the Galatian church. In fact, he's he's downright angry. He's shocked because they've departed and others are distorting the gospel, as verses 6 and 7 make clear. And that's not all. He has some harsh words for those who want to play that Jesus and card that we've talked about. The ones who believe that Jesus and works or and whatever are necessary for salvation. Because first in verse 8, he gives the hypothetical situation. He says... Even if we or an angel from heaven should fall off our rocker, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We'll talk about that word in just a minute. Then he goes to to the actual, to the the non-hypothetical. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone, in other words, anyone amongst you, because this was actually happening, if anyone amongst you is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed. That's a a fun word. Even if you don't know what it means exactly, you're probably thinking, that just sounds bad. And you're right. Um, The Greek word is anathema. And it means to be cursed under the curse of God. That's no light phrase to throw around. It's very weighty, very heavy. And the reason Paul throws it out is because if there is someone there who thinks that they can save themselves in part, then it's true. They are under the curse of God because they have failed to embrace Christ as a Savior. If you think that you, your friend, someone else, anything but Christ is responsible for even 1% of your salvation, 1% of your forgiveness, then you haven't fully embraced the gospel. He's only your helper to get you along. He's not your Savior who raised you up out of the muck and the mire Paul says this because the error the Galatians were making was huge. They got the gospel wrong. They got the foundation wrong. As we know, that's an important thing. And that's why they get the anathema here. And I want to say this as we're closing this section. This was a grave error that brought down this thunderous rebuke. And it needs to be something that grave for us to utter that same rebuke. We don't need to start throwing the word anathema around for everyone who disagrees with some obscure theological position and things like that. Because I think sometimes, one of the things about our wonderful denomination is we can sometimes produce arrogance in the hearts of those who've fully, you know, come to uh, study and embrace the gospel. This is not a license here. Paul's strong words to the Galatians, to people who had erred from the truth, who had distorted the gospel, those are not a license for us to go around and be condemning or condescending to someone we think doesn't have the spiritual maturity we do. This was a grave offense. Anything less than that doesn't deserve this same thunderous rebuke right here. It's not a license to be condemning. The, uh, there's only one Savior, and He only has one gospel. And yes, we protect it fiercely, as Paul was doing here. We also proclaim it lovingly. Because of that, because we have one Savior and one gospel, ultimately, we only have one audience that matters, as Paul talks about in verse 10. Who is it the audience Paul was trying to please in verse 10? What does he say? He says it's God alone. That's his audience. He's not seeking the approval of man. He's not trying to please man. If he was still doing that, he wouldn't be a servant of Christ. His audience is God alone. He's not forming um, focus groups to capture, see if he's capturing the right demographics, the 18 to 25 crowd and whatnot. He's got one demographic that matters, and that's God alone. He wants to know, is God pleased with what I do? Will he one day say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy maker? Who does Paul want to please? Ultimately, it's not the Galatians. He wants to please the God of all grace who called him out of a life of people pleasing. And don't miss that for a second here. Don't miss that Paul is being accused of being a people pleaser, of trying to seek man's approval which isn't true at the time he writes this letter, but it once was true of Paul. Paul seems to hint that, yeah, there was a time that I was once trying to please men. Notice what he says in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man? Is he doing it now? Implies that maybe he once was, but not now. What does he say at the end of the verse? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It was once true of Paul. His old life, his life as a Pharisee, as the, the ultimate goody-two-shoes of the Jewish world, was all about earning acceptance from God through works of the law. Yes, that part's true. But also, it wasn't just about earning God's acceptance. It was about looking good before the rest of mankind. Looking better than them. Not anymore, Paul says. I'm not seeking man's approval anymore. And if you don't believe him, just go back and read the whole accursed section. <laughs> He's not trying to make friends with that statement right there. And speaking of which, why does he feel comfortable to unleash that thunderous rebuke on these people? Because once again, it's not about him and the Galatians. They might appreciate his earnestness and they might one day repent. He knows that. He also knows that they might be even more hardened and bitter in opposition to him. But Paul cares more about potentially restoring his brothers than being liked by his brothers. Now that doesn't mean that as Christians, we always throw caution and gentleness aside, but it does mean that we should pray for God that when pray to God, that when hard words need to be said, that we can stop fearing man's approval. You know how you can't please all the people all the time? See, Paul tried that once, and he's saying it didn't work. It's not where I found peace. It wasn't peaceful, it was exhausting. In the words of Augustine, you might say that Paul was restless until he found his rest in Christ. And so for the rest of his life, when Paul finally found that rest, he could say that he was living life quorum Deo, before the very face of God. One person to please, one audience that matters, one set of expectations to follow, with grace to lift him up when he stumbled, one audience A loving audience at that. Gracious audience. But only one. Now, of course, there are other people around him. Didn't mean he lived on an island. There were others to preach to. There were, you know, uh, folks that were around him. And in order to please that audience of one, he says elsewhere, he became all things to all men so that he might, by all means, save some. So, of course, to the Jews, he frequented their synagogues. He lived like a Jew. To the Greeks, he lived like a Greek, conversed with them in the marketplaces. To the educated folks, he used his own education to show them that faith in Christ was not empty faith. To the, to the lowly, he wasn't afraid to rub shoulders and make tents to pay the bills. He was all things to all people. He had one audience that mattered, but that didn't mean he had a license to offend Didn't mean that he was trying to be harsh to them for the sake of harshness, because the only person he had to please was God. No, no, no. He was pleasing an audience of one, but his audience of one would not have been pleased if he were less than loving when the situation called for it. He tried to, as much as possible, avoid unnecessary offenses, he says elsewhere. But what happens when someone comes up and says... Well, Jesus is great. I like Jesus. Yeah, that's great. But but all you need to do is just make sure that you've obeyed the law and then you can be assured that you have salvation. When Paul heard that, he couldn't just stand idly by. When he heard that, he knew that his audience of one wouldn't be pleased unless he responded with a resounding no. So that's why he responds the way he does. And that's why when Paul writes these words, he knows that his audience of one was pleased him now his opponents on the other hand the judaizers the circumcision party they weren't pleased and that comes through in this letter and in elsewhere in this in the same letter they they accused him of many things among them that he was kind of a flip-flopper that he would say one thing to one group one thing to another in order to earn their favor they'd said paul you're you say circumcision is fine and great when you're around us jews but you ignore the topic altogether when you're around the gentiles Aren't you really just telling us what we want to hear? Aren't you just a man pleaser, Paul? No, Paul says. You've got it all wrong. Circumcision's fine. Circumcision of the heart, that is, circumcision that reminds you of your need for repentance that kind's great. So circumcise your kids if you want to, and tell them about how they need a circumcised heart as well. Or don't circumcise them. Either way, just don't think that one solution or the other earns you anything before God. Neither one of them makes you more acceptable to Him. If you don't like that message, then then Paul says, I've got an audience of one to please. As he says elsewhere, neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation, only faith working through love, trust in circumcision, synagogue attendance, church attendance... Anything else than Christ alone. You'll find yourself under God's curse. And once again, he says, if you don't like that, then don't shoot the messenger. Because I've got an audience of one to please. How hard must that have been? How hard is it now to live and breathe for an audience of one? How hard is it to ignore the voice of Rebellious children who are telling you that you're a mean parent or a rebellious culture that tells you you're crazy for being a Christian. How hard is it to be marginalized in the media? How hard is it to please God, try to please Him without venting some righteous or unrighteous anger upon those who are trying so hard to stop you? It's important to remember though, Paul in the midst of this, in the midst of these strong words, he's not blowing his top or losing his temper. He's defending the gospel And in return, he's gladly bearing the marks of Christ. Mentally, emotionally, physically, maybe. He's bearing battle wounds from the enemy as he cries out, Father, work faith into these foolish Galatians who don't know what they're doing. Was it easy? I doubt it. I wish I could say it was easy. I wish I could say it was still easy. It's not easy to live and breathe for an audience of one. But is it worth it? The expectations, of course, are higher than you can imagine, but the grace to endure is made new every morning. The outside critics will be many, but what about that audience of one? Oh, he's, he's not fickle. Once he's accepted you, he'll never let you go. And really, when you get right down to it, what choice do you have? Because there is, is there another audience out there that you can strive to please, who will love you, accept you, forgive you when you stumble, and pick you up and clean you off to help you start with a clean slate? Is there another one out there like that? You know, Peter, the apostle who sometimes was the most clueless guy on the planet and sometimes got it so right, put it well. He said to Christ, where can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Other audiences in life might give you temporary praise, but they won't give you that. They can't give you the assurance of eternal life. There's still only one Savior. There's still only one gospel. And when you embrace the only Savior's only gospel, there's ultimately only one audience that you want to please. By God's grace, may that be true of us. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your blessings to us in Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, which is made new every morning. Father, great is your faithfulness. We thank you as well that we can know that in the midst of a thousand voices that are telling us we're getting it wrong, a thousand voices that are telling us that we are clueless and that we're crazy, that we have one audience that we're trying to please. And what audience who ultimately one day will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, Father, we long to hear those words. Give us grace to endure as we strive to uphold the great calling that you've placed upon us. It's in your son's name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. ray break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?